have the portion we'll be looking at this morning printed on the bulletin insert, and there's a brief outline for you to be able to follow along. I'm aware that I don't always give equal weight to each of the points, so sometimes I cause some consternation among people who think, boy, that was a long first point, now we're in trouble because he's never going to end before lunch. So um, they may be a little unequally weighted from time to time. I've been working, um, just studying through the book of James now. This, this is a new series for me, and I've entitled the series, uh, The Letter of James, Living Faith for Trying Times. Living faith is the theme, because even the demons believe and shudder, but they don't have a living faith. Living faith is faith that does more than just assent to the existence of God and of Jesus, but it's actually a faith that relies upon, trusts in, rests in what only Jesus Christ has done. It's a, it's a personal faith in Jesus Christ that results in a transformed life. It's lively faith because we live it out day by day in amongst trying times. It's trying times that James faced, that we face, that require us to have a lively faith. And in God's timing of things, in his providence, uh, back in the spring of 2019, I would work through a series called Lamentations for Today. We started in Lamentations 3, and we looked at suffering and hope. And then we looked at 2 Corinthians 12, and we looked at suffering and grace. And then 1 Peter 3, suffering and joy. Romans 5, suffering and salvation. And then 2 Corinthians 4, suffering and eternity. But I specifically didn't get to the next key passage on suffering and trials, and that's James 1. So here we are today, ready to tackle this. And I don't think it's any mistake that God uh, took us through the book, uh, through the theme of lamenting and suffering in 2019 before we hit 2020. God has a way of preparing us that way through his word because it is living and active. Uh, But what is God going to do in preparation today for us so that we will be able to face trials in the future? Follow along as I read James chapter 1. This is God's inspired and inerrant holy word. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. O gracious God, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you that across the millennia you have used your prophets and apostles to speak the truth to us and to inscripturate it for generations to follow. And we thank you that you have given your Holy Spirit to indwell us so that our eyes can see and behold what your word says, that our hearts and minds can make sense of what we are reading because these things are spiritually discerned and we have your spirit. 
But Lord, you've also given us power, power that in and of ourselves we can never hope for, we can never attain to. But because the same power, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead indwells us, we can live lives that powerfully serve you. So Lord, this chapter today before us, uh, we pray that you would use it to minister to our hearts and minds and to prepare us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back when I graduated from seminary, I went to my home church and I worked there for five years before coming to Redeemer for the last almost 20 years now. And Having graduated from seminary, I think Tony made reference to uh, when you graduate from seminary, you're the smartest person on the planet. So you have a lot of things that you know and, and just got to tell people. And, um, but there was so much that I didn't know, so much that I needed to do in terms of maturity. Maturity as a man, maturity as a husband, maturity as a father, and particularly maturity as a pastor. And I remember just distinctly showing up as the first pastor on the scene when one of our church members had a catastrophic fire that burnt down his house and all of his possessions. Thankfully, his wife wasn't there at the time and none of his pets were um, killed in the fire. But as I rolled up with my car to where he was at, I think the senior pastor was out of town, I thought to myself, what am I going to say to this man? He's just lost everything that he has in his house. And there he was literally in the front yard, just kind of staring back at this charred mess. And he was swaying back and forth, as I remember. He would put his hands in his, over his face and he would sob. And I thought, what do I say? What do I do? I, I would love to transport my self with 25 years of experience back to there, but I, I didn't have that experience. I, I simply walked up next to him. I, I didn't offer to help him find a place to sit down. I, I didn't put my arm around him. I, I didn't give him a water bottle or just any of the things that I just seemed to be common sense or what, what, what I would do for somebody that's just, he's in shock. He, he's literally in shock with the biggest trial of his life right before him. I wish I had the maturity to help him, but I didn't. But I did have enough sense to know not to read, count it all joy, my brother. (laughs) Or, God works all things together for good. You see, that would be pastoral malpractice. So that would be biblical malpractice. We need to grieve with those who grieve. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice. But we need to be careful. And I say this just to, as, a, as a word of caution, acknowledging that some of you may be right now staring at a pile of burning rubble or burnt down rubble. And maybe you need to just kind of tune out a little bit while we go through this passage and not hear it um, in this moment, but come back and listen to it later. Now people I can see turning off online while they're online and just uh, I'll come back to that some other time. But what I see in this passage is really helpful truth for the right time. The right time is the preparation before the trials happen. That's when God is going to graciously give us a window into his purposes for trials. Why does he bring trials? Now, 
largely the answers to our why questions, how long questions, our why do they prosper and why don't I, those are going to be largely only answered later in life and maybe not even until we get to glory. But God does give us truth. God does give us some answers. He does give us a a framework of what he's doing in bringing trials into our life. And I think we'll see from our passage today that God does bring trials to prove and to improve the living faith that he graciously gives us, his children. We're going to see that faith is an informed faith that brings steadfastness. It's a tested faith that brings maturity. And it's a wise faith that brings a stability that we need. So let's look at this informed faith that God gives He proves it, and then he improves it in our lives. And we see this in verse 2, how we are called to count it all joy, my brothers. Um, It's a counting. It's a reckoning. This is an act of your mind. It's an act of your thought process. Um, It means to consider. It means to make a mental judgment. It's to have a settled conviction. I can count on it. Or you can count on him. That, that's how we're to consider our trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trial, trials of various kinds. For you know. There's the other informed faith word that, that clues us off. That going through trials requires us to engage our minds. And not just to coast through. Not just to go on our emotions. Not just to go back on our experience. But really to use the minds that God's given us. And the word of God that informs our minds. So that we can face these trials with faith. As we consider what we are to know. First of all, we're not to count it all joy. We don't count trials as joy. Oh, I can't wait. This is so awesome. A trial, we can say is something we can count joy when we understand what God is doing with it or what God's purpose is in it. But, but suffering and pain and sorrow in and of itself isn't the source of the joy. It's understanding God and his purposes through that. So what are we to know? I think there's four things that, that come to mind that if we are informed in these areas of faith, this will help us to face those trials. And the first is that God is sovereign And he wants us to completely depend on him even when we're tempted to take control. We're to completely depend on him even when we want to take control. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. We need to know he's sovereign in the midst of trials. Secondly, we need to know that God's timing and his plans are always better than our plans even when we don't like it. Now, that's a key point because we often have a plan, a wonderful plan for our own lives, but we, we find it hard when somebody else's plan gets imposed on us. But I can tell you from God's word that God's plans are better than your plans. In Isaiah chapter 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, So my ways are higher than your ways. Neither are my ways yours, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. we got to come to terms with that, that God's plans are better than our plans. Thirdly, we need to come to grips with the, the fact 
that God is good and gracious and kind even when we don't feel like he is. Well, how can you know that? Well, God in his word tells us who he is. He tells us what his character is. Psalm 145 was our call to worship. In that call to worship, we hear the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. Prove that to be true. Test that and you'll see it is true. Fourthly, we need to know God wants us to be more like Jesus and will use all things to make us that way. A purpose in our suffering, a purpose in our trial, all things God is going to use to perfect us, to make us more like Christ. We know that from Romans eight twenty eight. Again, a misused word, verse, if you take it out of context and you say all things work together for good, well, hold on. It says all things work together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's his purpose, to conform us to the image of his son. He wants the trials in your life to make you more Christ-like. We have to know that. When we're informed in our faith, we'll face those trials in a much better way. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Tested faith is going to bring maturity. Maturity is something that we want. Maturity is something that we desire. God graciously teaches us these lessons over time. He doesn't give us all of them at once. You know that worst day ever in elementary school when somebody picked on you at the playground? It was the worst, and for you, at that age in your life, it was the worst day ever in your life. When that boy broke up with you in middle school, the worst day ever in your life. Yes, except there were going to be many more occasions for bad things, difficult things, the trials of college, of of young adulthood, maybe of marriage, maybe of, of, of losing a child, maybe of having a wayward child, maybe... So many things that can go wrong, so many difficulties and and things that we face, God graciously brings us along and doesn't test us with all of it at once. What is this testing? It says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This word testing is used a couple times in the New Testament, a couple times in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. In, In 1 Peter 1, verse 6, This is how Peter uses it. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The tested genuineness of your faith. It's compared to that testing that would be done and the proving that's done of precious metals by fire. Proverbs 27 uses this word. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and a man is tested by his praise. It's interesting that Proverbs says that the praise of other people is a test. Uh, James and Paul and Peter are going to say that suffering is also a test. But whatever circumstances it is, God's working to 
prove your faith. What, what does that mean? The analogy of this testing, when you put this ore or when you put this metal that's unrefined into the crucible, the, the container where you're going to pour on the heat or the furnace where you're going to melt this thing down, when you melt it, you see what rises to the surface is the impurities. And those things need to be pulled off or burnt off. And so when they're burnt off, you can see, you can verify, you can prove this is gold. This is precious. But as you go through that fire process, and as the fire burns off the dross, it doesn't put any precious metal in. It simply purifies and takes what doesn't belong out. And so too, in our faith, the heat of trials proves and improves the value of the faith, how effective it will be to face the next trial. Because the faith that you improve upon in the first trial as a young person is going to serve you as you go on and continue to refine you. It's never done. God is always working in us. And it, it leads to or produces steadfastness. I love this word. It's, it's just uh, an active staying power. It's constancy. It's endurance. It's perser- persistence. Uh, somebody said it's stickability. When we stick to what God's put before us. The picture is, a, is a, of a person successfully carrying a heavy load. The muscle of faith is going to be strengthened as we endure up under the trials of life. God graciously increases the weight incrementally. He doesn't just put it on us. You've heard it said that God will never give you more than you can bear, more than you can handle. Well, that's not true. He will give you more than you can handle on your own, but not more than you can handle with his help. Because that's what he desires to work in us, is for us to cry out to him, to call out to him for help. I don't have this, God. I need you to, to help me with this. That's why 1 Corinthians 10.13 is such a hope, that there's no temptation that's taken us that isn't common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to bear. But with that temptation, he'll provide a way, a way of escape that you may endure it. There's that word again, steadfastness, endurance. That word is used by Paul. It's used by Paul when talking to Timothy about persecutions that he will endure. It's used by Peter to describe the many sufferings that he endured. In Romans 5, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. That's the perspective that he can actually have on his suffering, that we can rejoice in it, we can count it joy because of what it produces. It's producing in you a steadfastness. And sometimes we don't even recognize it in ourselves. Sometimes that's working slowly under the, under the surface so that the next time we face a trial, we're not as rattled. We're, we're not as shaken as we were the time before. That's God working endurance in you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians four sixteen. so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for, these, for this light momentary affliction. Light momentary. This is the man who was stoned, beaten. He was shipwrecked, bitten by a viper. I mean, this guy went through a lot of suffering, but he can call it light and momentary affliction. How? 
in comparison to the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, that we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. God worked in Paul this faith that was tested faith. This tested faith meant a maturity in his life. The end of verse 4 says that this steadfastness will have an effect, the full effect that we may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. That's a big statement, that we will be perfect. You know, this can mean the perfection that will come when we're glorified, when God's finally finished his work of sanctifying, sanctifying, and sanctifying us so that we are finally fit for heaven and he ushers us home and, and, and makes us perfect. But it's also the perfecting that he does in us day by day, year by year. It's a high calling, yes, but Jesus said in Matthew 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But he goes on to encourage us that it's in him that we can grow. We are complete. That means possessing all the parts you need. Um, if you ever get a kit or a, uh, I've had a projects at home, like a grill that didn't have like all the little parts that you needed. It's incomplete and you got to wait until you can get a piece and a part to, to make it right. Well, God has given us everything what we need. He, he, it's the complete package. We're lacking nothing. Think of that car project that you have, that you're working on to perfect. You're working on to make better. It's that landscaping project that little by little you're making it into what you want it to be so it's, so it's just right. Uh, Janie and I this past summer knew that we were adding a few people to our home fellowship group and we were going to have to make more seating in our living area, our living room area. So Janie collected some of those things that were going to be decor for the walls because when you put decor on the walls you automatically get more seating somehow. Um, so that's part of the project. And then uh, I went to Home Depot and I got some shelving uh, pieces and some um, paving stones and we're going to build some shelves to put some things away. We had this large kind of entertainment center armoire that opened up. It was big enough for those old school TVs that had the tube in them, right? And so we got that out of the way. We got more space around. We moved a couch from out in front of a window so now we can actually open the window and, and let the air in. And so we step back and we look at this remodeling project. We look at how we put it all together and it looked just right. It was like, why did we wait so long to make it the way we wanted it to be? We go through that process in our life of maturing, perfecting, and, you know, God is never done with us until he actually brings us into his presence. So we can count on him to continue that maturing process. Now, I want that maturity today. I wanted that when I was fresh out of seminary. I mean, I was three years older than, than Josh was when I'm faced with this, this tragedy. Why can't I go to a book and just get all the answers for all the trials that I will ever come and I'll have all that maturity? Well, Maturity doesn't come from the book knowledge. Maturity doesn't come. There's no shortcut to get to maturity. I think we believe that sometimes the story of Joseph at the end of his life or later in life, when he looks back and he says, and his brothers are there, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. I want to have that clarity at the very beginning. 
but we don't have recorded for us when Joseph was thrown into the pit. He landed at the bottom and said, oh, I know you're intending this for evil, but God's going to intend it for good. Or he's wasting away in the prison and he gets stabbed in the back by the guy who was supposed to tell, I can interpret dreams, to the Pharaoh. And he's thinking, oh yeah, you intended it for evil, but God intends it for good. This is going to work out. That comes later as he matures and he grows. That's why I love to be around more seasoned saints, people who have walked with the Lord a little longer, who have a little longer perspective on things than I have. And they can point us to the, the wisdom that can come by depending on the Lord and growing in him. Finally, I want us to look at wise faith. Wise faith is going to bring us stability. You know, it says at the end of verse 4 that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. But then he says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. Uh, raise your hand if you lack wisdom. I think everybody knows that we lack wisdom. What are we to do? Ask, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Just, just think of this. This is how we're to ask God. And here's four things I want us to know about asking God and what we can expect. When we ask God for wisdom, he gives it. He gives it. See, this is the wisdom from God, not worldly wisdom. This is wisdom from God. It's not my intuition. It's not somebody's experience or somebody's anecdotes. This is God's wisdom. That's, that's where we have to pursue wisdom. Secondly, he gives generously. He's not stingy. When we ask him for wisdom, he sees the humility in that. The, the proud says, I don't need any help. I got that. Well, God opposes the proud. But he's going to graciously give wisdom when we ask, and he's going to be generous. He's going to simply, sincerely, and graciously, bountifully give us wisdom. And who does he give this wisdom to? He gives generously to all. God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't have like super Christians that are fit and made for trials, that those are the ones that he gives wisdom to. No, God gives to all. He doesn't care what your IQ is. He doesn't care what your education is. He gives wisdom to all generously. And he does so without reproach. And I guess maybe I didn't understand why the without reproach was tacked on there in the end, and I really didn't even bother looking at it or studying it or figuring out what it meant. But I'm glad I, stay, I, I stuck with it and I did. Because I think this really makes this phrase it's just stand out to me. Without reproach is he's going to give this wisdom without rebuking us, without um, scolding us, without giving us a guilt trip. It's, it's, it's as if he's saying, okay, I gave you wisdom before, and what did you do with it? I'm not sure if I want to give it to you again. Hold off. That's not how God gives generous wisdom. Not with the reproach, not with the, uh, don't screw it up this time like you did last time. No, he graciously gives it to us without reproach, without making us feel bad for asking again. So what should we do? Ask God for wisdom. I mean, every day when you wake up, every time you face a trial, every time you face a dif difficulty, ask for wisdom. Every, I think it's at the beginning of every counseling conversation that I have, before I pick up a phone to call somebody about an issue, Lord, give me wisdom in this. Lord, I need wisdom. I lack wisdom. But I want to ask 
believing. Ask, as we're told, ask in faith. Verse 6 says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. Now that's tough, right? Complete faith. You exactly know that this is going to happen. Well, when we ask in faith, one, one commentator said, for a believer, this is biblical confidence. And biblical confidence is placing our faith in a loving, sovereign God rather than our own abilities. So if you think of faith, not faith in yourself, but it's, it's faith in God. Faith in what God can do. Faith in what he has done. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. He also says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you can say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, he's obviously not saying that you can pray for things that are against his will. Lord, help me to win the lottery. You know, that, that's outside of the, the purview of what God has told us to pray for. But when we pray for the things that are in agreement with his will, that agree with his will, we can expect God to answer. We should ask in faith, not doubting. Do you believe that he's able to do abundantly more than you could ask or imagine? Are you convinced? Do you know whom you have believed? And are you convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to you? God is powerful. He is able to answer our prayers. So when Paul asked for relief, Paul prayed. He prayed earnestly. I'm sure he prayed in faith. If it's the three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn in the flesh, this trial in Paul's life. And he wanted God to answer that prayer by taking away the thorn. But how did God answer his prayer? He did. He said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's response to that, therefore I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, that's his informed faith helping him to be steadfast. Uh, That's a, a tested faith that is producing in him a maturity that guides him throughout all the difficulties. Even when God doesn't answer the way that we want him to, he still answers in the way that we need to hear. When we ask in faith, we are not doubting. You see, the doubting one is the one who is like the wave of the sea. It's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. You see, when we doubt God, we're unstable. It's not like the waves that are crashing onto the shore. These are the waves that are like in the middle of the sea that are going up and down and all over the place. You can't rely upon them. It's unsteady. Wise faith is not feeling driven. Uh, feelings are involved in our life. I'm not, I'm not putting down feelings, but they are, they're not fit for the guidance and the direction that we need. We, we need wisdom from God, not simply our feelings, living out of our emotions. Wise faith is not circumstantially driven. When these things work out, then I'll get this. And when I can just make it this way. And No, it's not your circumstances. We need to... Uh, I need to get this in order to be satisfied. No, it's to be satisfied in what God has brought. Wise faith is not just jumping on to the latest bandwagon or, or switching back and forth, changing directions. Wise faith is looking for God's glory and serving others rather than seeking to be served. What's in it for me? You see, 
um, one author said that the goal here in maturity and in um, bringing this stability is for more consistent living for Christ. It's less fluctuating in our loyalty to Christ. It's being less erratic in our conduct for Christ. I want that to be me today. God, by his grace, works that in our lives over time. And we have to have faith to believe that he will give us what we need for the trial that he calls us to. I don't know where you're at in your life. There's a variety of ages. There's a variety of backgrounds and histories. There's so much going on in people's lives. Some of you are at the very front end of the trials that you will face in life. And there's one thing that we can't take a shortcut or accelerate our learning uh, and our maturity. But we can, as uh, we're told here, is to let steadfastness have its effect. Don't stand in the way of what God's teaching you through those trials. Learn and grow through them rather than getting bitter and angry at God, rather than being frustrated, rather than running away. There's so many things we could do to short-circuit the maturing that can take place and that should take place, that God is designed to take place. But be patient. Be patient with others. Be patient with yourself that he's working and maturing other people as he's working and maturing you. And so allow some space for people to grow. You know, I want you to think in closing of when we go to a wedding and we hear a young couple at the very beginning of what hopefully will be a long, long, long journey together say things like, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife to live after God's commandments in the holiest state of marriage? Will you love her, honor her, cherish her so long as you both shall live? Sure, I'll do that. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. Got it. We're doing it. You could never have imagined all the sorrow that you'd face, all the sickness that you'd face, all the hardships that you would face, the moment that you made this commitment, the moment you took that vow, that young couple, starry-eyed, looking into each other's eyes and saying, yes, I will, yes, I do. Ask in faith for the wisdom that God gives to provide stability for your life. At the very outset, look for an informed faith that helps you to be steadfast under these trials. Continue to see that testing, the tested faith, that will result in maturity. And be patient as God works that in our lives, always looking to him, because he will prove that the faith that you have is a gift of God. It's his gift given to you. And he will improve that faith as we walk in it, exercise it, and use that muscle that he's given. And graciously, he transforms us into people that can say, I count it joy to face these trials, whatever they may be, because of what God's doing. Let's pray. Father, we don't confess to know all the whys and wherefores. And and, and forgive us, Lord, for being so demanding that we would know. I pray that you would grant us contentment in you, that you would grant us um, the wisdom to know when to stop asking questions and to just rely upon you, to wait upon you, to have patience in you. So, Lord, I pray that you would use your word by your Spirit's power to perfect us, that we would lack nothing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our hymn of response this morning is hymn 1000.